Since they seemed so much to want company, she found herself at dinner with them once a week, every two weeks at the most. After dinner, over cups of mint or Jamaica tea, they would sit around the table while Sam told stories. About the time Anna got polio at a dig deep in the jungle in the Yucatan, how they got her to a hospital, how kind people were. Many stories about the house they built in Jalapa, the mayor's wife, the time she broke her leg climbing out of a window to avoid a visitor. Sam's stories always began, that reminds me of the time. This week on Selected Shorts, friends and family. I took mental notes on the room of children of rainbow faces, but my eyes hung on you. Your mahogany skin and dark, keen eyes. Your fat, curled fingers grasping at blocks, trying to build something sturdy, true. I grew skilled at enduring the feeling you inspired, a seeping pride that filled my chest and spilled into a painful ache. Hey y'all, I'm LeVar Burton, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. I am an actor, and you may remember me for projects such as Roots or Star Trek The Next Generation, but I'm also an advocate for literacy. Through projects such as Reading Rainbow and my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads, I have celebrated the power and the joy of reading for many decades now. So collaborating on a live show with the crew here at Selected Shorts felt like not only a natural fit, it was something I really was excited about doing. We're going to hear two stories from that show performed at Symphony Space, and our first story is by the author Lucia Berlin. Now, Ms. Berlin lived a nomadic life. She worked blue-collar jobs, raised children, battled alcoholism. She wrote down everything she experienced. And her short stories only began receiving their due after her death in 2004, and we are happy to do what we can to spread the word now. This is Lucia Berlin's story, Friends, performed by the very wonderful actor, Lydia Gaston. Loretta met Anna and Sam the day she saved Sam's life. Anna and Sam were old. She was 80, and he was 89. Loretta would see Anna from time to time when she went to swim at her neighbor Elaine's pool. One day, she stopped by as the two women were convincing the old guy to take a swim. He finally got in, was dog paddling along with a big grin on his face when he had a seizure. The other two women were in the shallow end and didn't notice. Loretta jumped in, shoes and all, pulled him to the steps and up and out of the pool. He didn't need resuscitation, but he was disoriented and frightened. He had some medicine to take for epilepsy, and they helped him dry off and dress. They all sat around for a while until they were sure he was fine and could walk to their house, just down the block. 
Anna and Sam kept thanking Loretta for saving his life and insisted that she go to lunch at their house the next day. It happened that she wasn't working for the next few days. She had taken three days off without pay because she had a lot of things that needed doing. Lunch with them would mean going all the way back to Berkeley from the city and not finishing everything in one day as she had planned. She often felt helpless in situations like this, the kind where you say to yourself, gosh, it's the least I can do. They are so nice. If you don't do it, you feel guilty. And if you do, you feel like a wimp. She stopped being in a bad mood the minute she was inside their apartment. It was sunny and open like an old house in Mexico where they had lived most of their lives. Anna had been an archaeologist and Sam an engineer. They had worked together every day at Teotihuacan and other sites. Their apartment was filled with fine pottery and photographs, a wonderful library. Downstairs, in the backyard, was a large vegetable garden, many fruit trees, berries. Loretta was amazed that the two bird-like frail people did all the work themselves. Both of them used canes and walked with much difficulty. Lunch was toasted cheese sandwiches, chayote soup, and a salad from their garden. Anna and Sam prepared the lunch together, set the table, and served the lunch together. They had done everything together for 50 years. Like twins, they each echoed the other or finished sentences the other had started. Lunch passed pleasantly as they told her, in stereo, some of their experiences working on the pyramid in Mexico and about other excavations they had worked on. Loretta was impressed by these two old people, by their shared love of music and gardening, by their enjoyment of each other. She was amazed at how involved they were in local and national politics, going to marches and protests, writing congressmen and editors, making phone calls. They read three or four papers every day, read novels or history to each other at night. While Sam was clearing the table with shaking hands, Loretta said to Anna how enviable it was to have such a close lifetime companion. Yes, Anna said, but soon one of us will be gone. Loretta was to remember that statement much later and wonder if Anna had begun to cultivate a friendship with her as a sort of insurance policy against the time when one of them would die. But no, she thought, it was simpler than that. The two of them had been so self-sufficient so enough for each other all their lives. But now Sam was becoming dreamy and often incoherent. He repeated the same stories over and over, and although Anna was always patient with him, Loretta felt that she was glad to have someone else to talk to. Whatever the reason, she found herself more and more involved in Sam and Anna's life. They didn't drive anymore, often, Anna would call Loretta at work and ask her to pick up Pete Moss when she got off or take Sam to the eye doctor. Sometimes 
Both of them felt too bad to go to the store, so Loretta would pick things up for them. She liked them both, admired them. Since they seemed so much to want company, she found herself at dinner with them once a week, every two weeks at the most. A few times, she asked them to her house for dinner, but there were so many steps to climb and the two arrived so exhausted that she stopped. So then she would take fish or chicken or a pasta dish to their house. They would make a salad, serve berries from the garden for dessert. After dinner, over cups of mint or Jamaica tea, they would sit around the table while Sam told stories about the time Anna got polio at a dig deep in the jungle in the Yucatan, how they got her to a hospital, how kind people were. Many stories about the house they built in Jalapa, the mayor's wife, the time she broke her leg climbing out of a window to avoid a visitor. <laughs> Sam's stories always began, that reminds me of the time. Little by little, Loretta learned the details of their life story, their courtship on Mount Tam, their romance in New York while they were communists living in sin. They had never married, still took satisfaction in this unconventionality. They had two children, both lived in distant cities. There were stories about the ranch near Big Sur when the children were little. As the story was ending, Loretta would say, I hate to leave, but I have to get to work very early tomorrow. Often, she would leave then. Usually, though, Sam would say, uh, just let me tell you what happened to the wind-up phonograph. Hours later, exhausted, she would drive home to her house in Oakland, saying to herself that she couldn't keep on doing this or that she would keep going but set a definite time limit. It was not that they were ever boring or uninteresting. On the contrary, the couple had lived a rich, full life, were involved and perceptive. They were intensely interested in the world, in their own past. They had such a good time adding to the other's remarks arguing about dates or details that Loretta didn't have the heart to interrupt them and leave. And it did make her feel good to go there because the two people were so glad to see her. But sometimes she felt like not going over at all when she was too tired or had something else to do. Finally, she did say that she couldn't stay so late, that it was hard to get up the next morning. Come for Sunday brunch, Anna said. When the weather was fair, they ate on a table on their porch, surrounded by flowers and plants. Hundreds of birds came to the feeders right by them. As it grew colder, they ate inside by a cast iron stove. Sam tended it with logs he had split himself. They had waffles, or Sam's special omelette. Sometimes, Loretta brought bagels and locks. Hours went by. The day went by as Sam told his stories, with Anna correcting them and adding comments. Sometimes, in the sun on the porch or by the heat of the fire, it was hard to stay awake. Their house in Mexico 
had been made of concrete block, but the beams and counters and cupboards had been made of cedar wood. First, the big room, the kitchen and living room was built. They had planted trees, of course, even before they started building the house. Bananas and plums, jacarandas. The next year, they added a bedroom. Several years later, another bedroom and a studio for Anna. The beds, the workbenches and tables were made of cedar. They got home to their little house after working in the field in another state in Mexico. The house was always cool and smelled of cedar, like a big cedar chest. Anna got pneumonia and had to go to the hospital. As sick as she was, all she could think of was Sam, how he would get along without her. Loretta promised her she would go by before work, see that he took his medication and had breakfast, that she would cook him dinner after work, take him to the hospital to see her. The terrible part was that Sam didn't talk. He would sit shivering on the side of the bed as Loretta helped him dress. Mechanically, he took his pills and drank pineapple juice, carefully wiped his chin after he ate breakfast. In the evening, when she arrived, he would be standing on the porch waiting for her. He wanted to go see Anna first and then have dinner. When they got to the hospital, Anna lay pale, her long white braids hanging down like a little girl's. She had an IV, a catheter, oxygen. She didn't speak but smiled and held Sam's hand while he told her how he had done a load of wash, watered the tomatoes, mulched the beans, washed dishes, made lemonade. He talked on to her, breathless, told her every hour of his day. When they left, Loretta had to hold him tight. He stumbled and wavered as he walked in the car going home. He cried. He was so worried. But Anna came home and was fine, except that there was so much to be done in the garden. The next Sunday after brunch, Loretta helped weed the garden, cut back blackberry vines. Loretta was worried then. What if Anna got really sick? What was she in for with this friendship? The couple's dependence upon each other, their vulnerability saddened and moved her. Those thoughts passed through her head as she worked, but it was nice, the cool black dirt, the sun on her back, Sam telling his stories as he weeded the adjacent row. The next Sunday that Loretta went to their house, she was late. She had been up early. There had been many things to do. She really wanted to stay home, but didn't have the heart to call and cancel. The front door was not unlatched as usual, so she went to the garden to go up the back steps. She walked into the garden to look around. It was lush with tomatoes, squash, snow peas, drowsy bees. Anna and Sam were outside on the porch, upstairs. Loretta was going to call to them, but they were talking very intently. 
She's never been late before. Maybe she won't come. Oh, she'll come. These mornings mean so much to her. <laughs> Poor thing. She is so lonely. <laughs> she needs us. We're really her only family. <laughs> she sure enjoys my stories. Dang, I can't think of a single one to tell her today. Something will come to you. Hello, Loretta called. Anybody home? That was Lydia Gaston reading Friends by Lucia Berlin. I'm LeVar Burton, and when we return, a father's perilous experiment. You're listening to Selected Shorts recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts, y'all. I'm LeVar Burton. For more information about the stories that you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to SelectedShorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and on the gram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. And when you do, you'll get episodes of the spinoff podcast, Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. I have always enjoyed introducing people to literary talent about which they may not have heard. So I am extremely happy to present this next tale by the writer Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. I call this a first-person confessional horror story. When I first read the story I'm about to read for you, it was one of those situations where I finished and I was angry. And it wasn't until I went back and read the story again that I understood the intent of the writer, which was to really engage me on a very visceral level. Mission accomplished, Ms. Johnson. Mission accomplished. This is me, LeVar Burton, performing Control Negro by Jocelyn Nicole Johnson. By the time you read this, you may have figured it out. Perhaps your mother told you though she was only privy to my time-worn thesis, never my aim or full intention. Still, maybe the truth of it breached your insides, that I am your father, that you 
are my son. In these typewritten pages, I mean to make manifest the truth, the whole. Please do not mistake this letter for some manner of veiled confession. I cannot afford to be sorry, not for any of it. I hope you'll come to understand it was all for a greater good. You see, I needed a control Negro. Grotesque as that may sound, you should know that I was there on the day you were born, a reflection behind the nursery glass. I laid eyes on you while your mother rested, along with her husband, that man you must have accepted at least for a time as your father. You seemed to see me too, my blurred silhouette. Your birth, natural, vaginal, took place at the university's teaching hospital. I noted your weight, seven pounds, seven ounces. Your color, dark and florid. Your temperament, outwardly placid, like mine. I assisted with payment for your daycare as well when you were so small, still in those plush white pampers. The facility sat at the edge of campus, so graduate students like your mother could enroll their young children while they worked or studied, and faculty, like me, could take guided tours and observe through mirrored one-way glass. I took mental notes on the room of children of rainbow faces, but my eyes hung on you your mahogany skin and dark, keen eyes. Your fat, curled fingers grasping at blocks, trying to build something sturdy and true. I grew skilled at enduring the feeling you inspired, a seeping pride that filled my chest, then spilled into a painful ache. Remember your season of Little League games, the ones at Washington Park just down from the bus stop? I could always spot you, especially at a distance. You'd be standing at the plate, arms angled, aiming for the bright white ball, determined to hit it past every boundary we could see. What I mean to say is that all this time, I've watched you, or else had others watch in my stead. My TA did a practicum with your sixth grade civics teacher. One of my graduate students tutored you in middle school at my suggestion that he give something back. He shared anecdotes of your progress, never suspecting that you were mine. Your sophomore year, I hired a college student, a young man of legal age, but slight enough to pass for 17. You knew him as David from the neighboring county. Under my direction. He befriended you, prodded you toward swimming and away from the fraught cliche of basketball. <laughs> he ferried me printouts of your correspondence, revealing your vernacular speech, the slant of your smile and cell phone pictures. Hearing this now, you might feel manipulated, violated even, but I am almost certain that my determination to shape and groom, my attempts and failures to protect aren't terribly different from those of any other parent. Everyone has an origin story, and this is yours. 
You began a thought fully formed and sprung from my head. No, uh, you were more like a determined line of questions, marching all together toward a momentous thrashing. It was 1985, years before you were born, and I'd just come to work here on this campus. Mother died at the start of fall semester, her body inundated with cancer, undiagnosed until she passed. Still numb, I traveled south to bury her, missing the initiation of my own first classes, returning as promptly as I could. I was only away for a week and a day. Still, a cold snap had scattered leaves onto the great lawn. My first afternoon back, I walked over to my office and was straightening the objects on my desk, my shirt sleeves rolled up, my back to the door. A man walked in, and he startled when I turned to face him, so I startled too. He was, I learned a few minutes later, a senior colleague from my own department, history. He'd been away on sabbatical and had come to my office to welcome me. Sorry, he said. I'm looking for Professor Adams. Do you know where I can find him, buddy? Well, I realized what was happening a moment before he did and forced myself to laugh, to try to put him at ease though I fear my laughter came out as a strangled sound. You see, he'd mistaken me for one of the evening janitors. But then the next week, I stood before all of my bright young students. For the first time in a long time, I felt, if not settled, then at least situated. Soon afterward, in a morning seminar, I remember feeling hopeful as I collected an early set of in-class writings, our topic 19th century thinkers. I discovered a hand-drawn cartoon among the shuffle. No name in the corner, passed in on purpose or by accident, it was hard to tell which. It was nothing, really, just a single frame of itchy graphite titled Irony. Within its borders, a history professor leaned over a lectern looking quite like me, same jacket, same bow tie, except with something primitive about his face. A thought bubble hovered over the room of students. Darwin taught to men by an ape. It's nothing, I told myself, again, walking back to my apartment that evening, though in truth, I felt tired. What does it matter, I remember thinking. What does it matter how much I achieve or how clearly I speak or how carefully I conduct myself if the brutal misjudgments remain regardless? What if even here they cannot bring themselves to see me and instead see something oblique reflected where I thought I stood? Mother always told me, work hard, Cornelius, work twice as hard and you can have something. But there I was, a grown man wondering what it was I could have, and what would forever be withheld. What I needed, it occurred to me then, was to watch another man's life unfold, a black boy, not unlike me, but better than me, an African-American who was otherwise equivalent to those broods of average American Caucasian males who scudded through my classrooms, ACMs, I came to call them. 
and I wondered how they would measure up with this flawless young man as a watermark. No, it wasn't them, exactly. I wanted to test my own beloved country. Given the right conditions, could America extend her promise of life and liberty to me, too? To someone like me? What I needed was a control Negro. And given what I teach, it wasn't lost on me, the agitation of those two words linked together, that archaic descriptor clanking off the end like a rusted shackle. Those words struck in me, and from them, you grew. That was the start of my true research, a secret second job hidden inside the rigors of my first one. Evenings and weekends, I searched library stacks, scoured journals, and published studies. I focused on contemporary ACMs, looking for patterns for cause and effect. An ACM's expected time with his father, watching the game, I imagined, practicing catch. Versus police reports of petty vandalism, of said balls careening through a neighbor's window. I was determined to measure the relationship of support to action to reaction, to autonomy in these young men. And at some point, it occurred to me to work backwards. I gathered a more intimate sample, 25 case files borrowed from the university's records culled from a larger random pool. Now, these ACMs came from families of high middle income, had average or slightly above average IQs, had faces that approached symmetry as determined by their student ID photos. In my pursuit to better understand them, I called suburban high schools, interviewed teachers, coaches, parents even, always over the phone under less than forthright pretenses, I conceded. My ACMs were all good, promising young men, but they were flawed, too, if you scratched the surface. My dredging uncovered attention deficit disorder, depression, vandalism, drug and alcohol abuse. In several cases, I found evidence of more serious transgressions, assault and battery, accusations of sexual misconduct. Not one of these young men was perfect, yet each held promise, and this promise on balance was enough to protect them and to buoy their young lives into the future. Five years of my life spent marveling at the resiliency of theirs. Now all I had to do was monitor a boy who enjoyed on average the same lifted circumstances that my ACMs had experienced. Prenatal care and regular visits to the dentist, an educated mother and father, or father figure, well-funded schools and a residence situated in a good, safe neighborhood. For his part, this young man would have to keep his grades up, have clear diction, wear his pants at an average perch <laughs> on his waist. He would have to present a moderate temperament, maybe twice as moderate just to be safe as those bright boys he'd be buffed so hard to mirror. What I aimed to do was to painstakingly mark the route of this black child, one whom I could prove was so strikingly decent and true that America could not find fault in him unless we, as a nation, had projected it there. But about this time, 
I met your mother. Well, what can I say? She was, in her own way, a force of nature and the sole woman of color in the graduate program for environmental studies that year. I spotted her one rainy afternoon in a dimly lit classroom. The door half open, she stood at the lectern rehearsing, her PowerPoint blinking furiously behind her, projecting light and shadow on her face. Slide after slide of washed out shores and water rising, she looked up at me but did not lose her place. It would be only one more year before you were born. Our first night together, your mother informed me she was married. She intended to remain married, which came as a relief. Those early years of struggle, and I'd become a solitary sort of man. Nonetheless, we continued to see one another sporadically into the spring. She wanted a child, I knew, and, and although her husband was likely the source of her childlessness, to protect his pride, she alone bore the blame between them. That winter when I found out you were growing inside her, part mine and a boy. We both agreed. I would contribute financially and keep silent about my paternity. She would keep you nearby and take my requests regarding you to heart. She knew about my ACMs, but never that I needed a boy to balance them. Right then I realized, right then and there, I realized who you would be. There are many studies now about the cost of race in this great nation. Most convincing is the work from other departments, sociology, cultural anthropology. Researchers send out identical resumes or home loan applications, half of which are headed with ethnic sounding names. They instruct black and white individuals to watch other black and white individuals receive a painful looking shot. And the needle digs into muscle and the researchers mark how much sweat leaks from the pores of the watchers. They measure who gets the job, the loan, who gets the lion's share of salted, dank empathy. They mark which human-shaped targets get shot at by police in study after study, no matter how innocuous the silhouetted objects they cradle. All these studies I concede are good, great work, but I wonder if there isn't something flawed in them that makes the findings too easy to dismiss. My research, by contrast, has been more personal, challenging me at times to re-examine my history. Now, different my life has been from the lives of my ACMs and from your life. You grew up on that tree-lined cul-de-sac while I was born in the back room of a two-room house in the sand hills of South Carolina. I was a dark-skinned, bookish child. We both are only sons. My own mother didn't have much money, but then again, no one had much. Certainly not any of the colored folks we knew, the only point of comparison one dared in those days. Most of my schoolmates had fathers, though, and mine had gone north to Chicago for work and not come back. He was essentially a stranger. Even so, growing up, I felt his abandonment acutely, like hunger 
I filled that hunger with reading. Like you, I played baseball, if briefly. The summer I turned 10, I joined the Negro Youth League. I went for the promised uniforms, which turned out to be sweat-stained cast-offs, salvaged from a white church's collection. Even so, thick patches had been sewn onto the chests, and underneath mine, my heart felt sanctioned. Our very first practice, I managed a decent hit, a satisfying thwack like an axe cleaving wood. Afterward, I should have walked back with the others, but instead I set off on my own, replaying my minuscule victory in my head until it felt epic and novel-worthy. I wandered down behind White Knoll, crossing Maine, still dreaming. I didn't realize where I was until I heard car doors slap shut behind me, felt the chilled shadows of strangers. Three young white men had gathered around me, their bodies blocking each path of escape I darted toward. Where does this boy believe he's going? The one in work boots said. As they knocked and beat me to the ground, I couldn't help but think of a boy we all knew of, Tully Jones, whose body had been found some summer before floating in the river, his head bashed in. When these men finish killing me, they'll drag my body down to the water too, I remember thinking. Please, don't hold me down under that murky water. I, I, I can't even swim. Why hadn't I learned to swim? And how would mother even find my body? What if she thought I'd run off like my father did? Up close, the men reeked of peach brandy, the kind my schoolmates' fathers would nurse Friday nights under the sycamores. When those men finished doing what they did to me, I lay chest and cheek in the sand, playing dead as they staggered back to their car, breathless. Even after they pulled off, sending a sharp spray of gravel over my body, I kept on playing dead, as if I were sunk down under that endless water, my skin a wrinkled softness that would soon scrape away or be eaten by crawfish, by those microscopic creatures that troubled the silted bottom until no one could tell, or else it didn't matter what color I was. The following fall, mother insisted I attend a private boarding school miles out of town. I wasn't to live in the dormitory with the others. Instead, I woke before sunrise, walked out to the highway, and caught a ride with a deacon from our church, an elderly man who smelled of polishing oil. He was the boarding school's custodian and the only other brown face to grace those halls besides mine. During the school day, we never looked at one another. I was always aware when he was in the room, but I never let my eyes rest on his, not until we were far away from that place, and even then it was, it was with a kind of shame. The school's headmaster, the man who had agreed to my admittance, had gone up north for some number of years. His surname was the name of the school, and everyone knew it was his family's money that kept the dying boarding school from going under. At school assemblies, this headmaster would find excuses to parade me across the stage, 
my improbably strong elocution, the sharp crease in my uniform, defiant or oblivious to the contempt my visibility inspired. Even the dimmest boys were clever in their cruelty. Mother had been hired to cook and clean at the headmaster's residence in town, and for this, the others mocked her mercilessly. What could I do? It was true, my scholarship was her bowed back, her bleach-bitten hands. Enrolling me there must have been an act of faith or desperation, like pressing a message into a bottle and floating it into turbulent waters. Even so, I clung to my formal education, setting off at 17 to a small, all-black college, then going far north for graduate school. The boys I'd grown up with mostly stayed rooted. They married girls from church, worked hard to scrape together a living or get ahead. Some were shipped off to Vietnam. A few marched in bigger towns, facing police dogs and fire hoses. I devoted my life to scholarly truth, spending the majority of my adult life here at this esteemed institution. After you were born, I purchased my own home, just a two-bedroom bungalow, but in a good neighborhood not far from campus. I can walk to work, and sometimes I do. And whenever I walk, my mind wanders. Occasionally, I worry that I've been self-indulgent in my research, somehow selfish in my secret fatherhood. Walking, I think the world is surely a better place now than it used to be for people of color. Aren't I myself living proof against my theories? Can't I be satisfied? But then, like current, I'll feel it again. Even now, it might be the guard at the campus market who follows me when I walk in to buy a carton of milk for my tea or a pair of young mothers who push their strollers widely around me on the great lawn. Mostly, it's a growing unease about my career. Yes, I was hired. Yes, I've managed to keep my head above water. But in these final years, they've burdened me with the lowliest committee assignments, filled my schedule with 100 level classes as if I were adjunct. Of course, this might be a reflection of some defect in my performance, a failure to publish as well as some colleague down the hall, my secret research obscuring my official work. But how can I know for sure? How does anyone know if they are getting more or less than they deserve? All I know for certain is that last September, a police car trailed me when I was walking home one brisk evening. Me, Professor Cornelius Adams, in my 60s, in my overcoat and loafers, my briefcase clutched beneath my arm. As you well know, cruisers often patrol the edge of campus, quieting fraternity parties, corralling drunken freshmen back onto grounds. They only pulsed their lights at me. And when I turned, the one on the passenger side, a black officer, shouted from his window, where was I going? he wanted to know. Before I could gather words to answer, a more urgent call must have come in. They turned on lights and sirens in earnest and sped away. Here are our lives laid out together. At 10, while I flailed beneath the blows of work boots, you flew down a zip line at a well-rated day camp. 
At 12, while I reread tattered spy novels on the bumpy ride back home from that boarding school, your baseball team placed second in the region. You brought home a trophy. Your mother took a photo of you lifting it. Eventually, she sent it to me. As you grew older, I continued to make certain wishes clear to your mother about your friends, your schooling, about the crop and length of your hair. Only once did she truly bristle at my intervention when I insisted you leave swim team your senior year. The swimming had been good at first, but then you placed at state a dive so graceful a big league coach courted you. For a season, you took private lessons, shearing your hair, waking before dawn. You excelled in the water, your mother said. You might get a scholarship or more, so why not let you continue? I could feel her picturing you, her black son draped in red, white, and blue, holding gold. In truth, I entertained this vision too, but in the end, I couldn't allow such a glaring deviation. When you were small, I'd worried you would sink below my ACMs, that you would be dragged down, but here you were soaring too high for a fair comparison instead. Of course, I did not say any of this to your mother. All I could do was remind her of my unwavering discretion. Hadn't I held up my side of the bargain all those years? When I said this, she hung up on me. And for a long time, we didn't speak, though I soon found out that the swimming had stopped. And so I was surprised when your mother called last August to inform me that you were transferring here to finish your degree. I was only startled to hear her voice. I already knew you were coming, of course. I'd seen it on your social media. Perhaps your return was an act of muscle memory. All those years spent here at daycare, then later in the back offices with your mother, it's possible that, too, you were persuaded by the slick recruiting packets I mailed to your P.O. box each semester. <laughs> Two years you'd attended that out-of-state school, and while you were away, I followed you as best I could, though less closely than felt comfortable. Like any parent whose child leaves for college, I was forced to let go of some of my sway, though this gap depressed me. Were you drinking too much, I wondered? Had you gotten into a fist fight or fallen in love with somebody? I drove up to your campus once, but found the whole layout disconcerting and never did set eyes on you. After that, I watched from a safer distance, monitoring arrest reports subscribing to your local and school media sites. I hoped to catch a glimpse of your life. Did it resemble the lives of my ACMs? Those boys I'd watched so ardently years earlier, their drunken escapades, their fearless hearts. All I know is when I spotted you here, you looked so tall, so lithe. I did the math, your age against mine, and you just turned 21. Whatever else had happened in the intervening years, you'd also become a man. Your visible ease in your own skin awakened something in me. Never mind those tragic stories from other towns and cities, young men lost and taken. They were not you. They were not mine. 
Your ascendance was a glimpse of what could be, and their deaths felt submerged. I realized you had never been average. You were more like a line of poetry, too lofty for me to decipher. With you here, I convinced myself that you'd made it out past an invisible tripwire, out to some safe and boundless future. Even if I could not be part of that future, I might still be able to revel in its promise. I was nearly ready to give up on my questions or claim that they'd been answered favorably, those questions of mine which had always, always been about hope. But then we both know what happened then. As soon as I heard what they'd done to you, I wrote through that first long night and canceled my next day's classes. Decades of research became a single anguished letter detailing the difference I could now measure on your face. I wrote about the burden of race, how it warps the lives of black and white people. I did not speak of my experiment directly. Instead, I used what happened to you as an anchor for my findings. I could never have predicted that my essay would spread so widely that inside of a week I'd be invited to appear on several networks and a handful of national radio shows. In studio after soundstage, I laid out my meticulous arguments supported by data and by true stories I'd witnessed with my own eyes. I thought they'd be convinced, but instead they interrupted with other stories, opposing conclusions. I, I thought they might believe me, but instead they held up a few undisciplined lines from my essay as proof that I was angry and absurd. Death threats flooded my inbox along with crooning love letters from mothers and sisters, from fathers and sons. Still, last night, I was contacted with an offer of publication, not from a prestigious university press as I'd always envisioned, but rather a two-book deal from a large traditional publisher best known for true crime stories. Maybe there I can finally write what I want, if it's all right by you, about what's been done to me, about the things I've done. As far as what happened to you, I saw the pictures like everyone else. I read every account. I studied the cell phone video frame by bloody frame. Here is your face in which I have always recognized fragments of my own. Here is your blood, too bright and pouring. Even as you lie stock still pinned to the pavement, the police shout staccato commands, which they seem desperate for you to follow. The camera veers, and I see them too, sauntering by in spotless sneakers, their ball caps askew. They look relieved that it's you there on the ground, or else they flash faux gang signs at a camera only they seem to appreciate. The police made a statement before the video surfaced in defiance of the fact that there is always a video nowadays. You seemed dangerous, they said, and I think of you as a swaddled newborn. They feared for their safety, they said, and perhaps this is true. Later in a press conference, they admitted you had an ID, but there was some discrepancy. It was from a neighboring state and unfamiliar. You did not appear to be who you said you were. 
Beyond all of this, I understood a separate truth, one not yet found in any publication. I knew that they had chosen you out of all those wasted students partying on the strip of college bars. I knew this because I'd worked late that night, the first warm evening of spring, and I decided to walk home through the carnival of youth and only by chance spotted you out in front of that bar on the corner. You were right there in the fray of students, half swaying to music that spilled from an open patio. You tilted your head toward me. Did you see me too? Did you recognize me? I can't adequately explain it, but I must tell you now that I was the one who called the precinct, claiming to have seen a suspicious young man at the corner of University and Second. I called, but I did not specify your height, your color. Afterward, I hurried home, reassuring myself, nothing will come to this. Nothing will come of it. I tried to tell myself, and I will finally be able to let it go or be let go by it. Son, please believe this. If you believe nothing else I've written, this was a test for them, for the world, not you. But here again, <clears throat> we must uh, take a step back and remind ourselves that this has all been in service to something bigger, that someday our sons' sons might be spared. Your mother used to say to me, the seas are rising, whatever you believe. Soon we will all be wet together and together we will grasp for air. I saw you again the other day, out on the lawn at the student-led protests. At first I didn't recognize you with that white bandage plastered across your head and the new, bowed way you hold your body. But then they delivered you to the front, and the small crowd swelled in support. I've read that there have been other demonstrations on other campuses along the East Coast, a rainbow of faces chanting and wailing as if there are multitudes of watchers now. When I saw you, I knew that you would recover, and it felt like I could breathe again for the very first time in a long while. But even closer to the bone was a feeling of grace that may well soon release me. I mean, look at you. Look at all you've accomplished in spite of everything. You made it here, just like they did. And I saw you, son, turning and wild Free, even. That was me, LeVar Burton, reading Control Negro by Jocelyn Nicole Johnson live on stage at Symphony Space. You might have encountered this story in the Best American Short Stories of 2018, which was edited, by the way, by Roxanne Gay. 
Roxanne says it's one hell of a story. I will not disagree with that. Thank you for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story, and support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Neas Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Coleman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station and Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space.